I would like to invite Anastasia Kubrak to come over. A designer and researcher, and in her work focuses on social political implications of emergent technologies. Um, by, posing, by proposing tangible ways to engage in complex narratives, she aims to address a broader audience, which would be us, in critical evaluation of emergent systems. Anastasia, go ahead. Hi, my name is Anastasia Kubrak, and I'm a designer and researcher, and I'm very happy and flattered to be here tonight to share some of my recent projects and thoughts. And um, kind of to start, I would say that the main underlying question that I'm trying to address with my work is what it means to be a human user in today's technological infrastructures. So recently, I graduated from Sandberg Institute with a thesis project in which I called user agent. And I would, would like to share you, with you today some of the key ideas or thoughts that I, would I outline in it and um, talk about what it means to live in a in smooth and neoliberal augmented city. But I'd like to start with a little story that I always start with. It's about what happened to me in Moscow. I myself come from Moscow, and last summer I went there, and I took an Uber cab uh, to go somewhere in the city center. But uh, in the end of the ride, I got billed like really incredibly high bill, three times more than usual. And um, when we started to look at the GPS route, what happened with the driver, it appeared that the car went to the airport outside of Moscow. And uh, actually what happened is that um, there was a GPS fence set up by Kremlin around the border of Kremlin, and it disrupted everyone's GPS in the city center. And it was set up to prevent unwanted drone flyovers over the Kremlin. Actually, later I discovered that there are much more, um, there are many more locations around Moscow and kind of revealing these kind of zones or uh, sensitive locations that disrupt everyone's GPS. This story kind of triggered my research into new new that what I call a new kind of urban zoning that uh, emerges in cities that are augmented by um, geospatial technologies, so GPS uh, sensors and signals. Wi-Fi trackers, Bluetooth uh, uh, beacons, and stuff like this. Or in this case, the um, no-fly drone zones. And usually, operation of this kind of geospatial algorithms in the cities uh, remain invisible to the naked eye and kind of operate really smoothly. But um, in the case of Kremlin, it's one of these weird exceptions which render one, uh, the operation of these systems visible or these kind of zones visible to the public. So I start uh, my uh, project or research with this kind of premise that um, today cities are resembling more and more resembling cybernetic feedback loops, which means that smooth digital applications and interfaces are real-time um, yeah, real applications not only augment our experience, but also become the only way that we encounter or understand urban space. So, uh, but while we use them to kind of navigate um, big technological companies like the classic gang of Google, Amazon, Cisco, or name your favorite, they also, um, they kind of start to take over the, um, the public services that are usually attributed to the state. So, to name a few, the mapping, the transportation, or um, housing, so. And they, while doing, they do that because there is a kind of a, they exploit the lack of regulation on the law in this area of kind of virtual, uh, let's say virtual area, and um, they exploit it through mechanisms of data extraction. And while 
um, they introduced this kind of new, uh, let's say, algorithms and zones. For example, in this case, this is an Uber surge pricing algorithm that changes during the day, changes kind of the rate of the Uber ride. Um, these algorithms start to also direct um, the movement or distribution of bodies and value within public space. So, um, while we consume space through technology, space also consumes and produces us. So, because while we use it, uh, we also, of course, constantly being measured, profiled, tracked, but also stirred towards moving or um, acting in certain direction, which produces even more data or even more capital. But how does it happen? And what, like, these are just some general themes, a kind of introduction to the topic. But uh, the main question that I wanted, or the, the statement I wanted to introduce, is that today any computational user is, oh, sorry, any inhabitant of a city is treated as a computational user by default. But who or what is a user? And how is it different from, for example, being a citizen, position of a citizen? So normally, usually, in a computation user is defined as a person who uses technology. But today it is less true in a world when bots uh, account for 15% of all Twitter accounts, for example. So today, any, literally anything or anyone who has a login or an, a password and connected to the network can be counted as a user. And um, the same cannot be said for a citizen, of course, because to be a citizen first, you probably need to be a human, but also you need to meet a set of strict legal requirements. But compared to being a citizen, user um, kind of loses its political agency within the city. So its rights and ability to exercise democratic decision-making are substituted by terms and conditions and forms of passive feedback within uh, private platforms. So users have no ability to kind of understand and also intervene in these algorithms that govern their daily lives. So it comes at cost of agency and autonomy. But... Um, what, what are actually these processes that um, deprive user of its agency? So I was trying to kind of formulate it, and I wanted to um, try to define the user through specific qualities. For example, that user is simulated. What does it mean? So user is simulated, which means that user is not a body, but it's a profile or a proxy. Uh, and the user profile is being constantly recalibrated or calculated by a platform in real time after each like or click. So basically, let's say yesterday I would, could have been labeled as a conservative right-wing ma male, and today I could be labeled as a woman with a flu. So like the identity of a citizen or of a user, sorry, uh, is a fluid and a kind of um, yeah, it's fluid. And of course, opposed to a citizen who has a fixed identity and rigid categories like the ones that you see in a passport, and whose identity is also defined by kind of statistics of the average. Um, user is optimized. And there I wanted to go back kind of the history of the emergence of a personal user, of the idea of the personal login, and which uh, happened in the 1970s after, at the times when the compu computer was still these enormous machines that processed information in forms of punch cards. And um, so the uh, computers would run one program at a time. They would not be able to kind of split their operation, the computational power into different programs. And so it was really inefficient. And then the new software was introduced called time sharing, and which allowed to uh, run different programs simultaneously at once. And that, but then, of course, people who were using that, the programmers had to register the names and kind of start tracking their own activity and also maybe pay based on what they use. 
So uh, the user as a term or like the concept was invented for purposes of economic efficiency. But today, uh, user is also kind of constantly living under this hegemony of uh, optimization and efficiency because whatever user does from working to meditating is kind of subjected to this idea of productivity. And why it happens is because, of course, the platform uh, main kind of the platform's main um, idea is to maximize user attention and activity because the user that is not active on the platform has no value for the platform. And uh, also something I was talking about in my project is that uh, while being kind of optimized and constantly forced or triggered to update and perform, um, users start to experience some kind of weird or maybe also byproducts of this like emotional labor maybe. So um, tiredness, stress or anxiety or fear of missing out. So another depressing statement that user is isolated. And by which I mean that, um, what I mean, is that uh, users communicate with each other in strictly defined and curated messenger spaces. So individual experience of each user is also very indiv hyper-individualized and almost egocentric because user is always in the center of the map. Uh, and rarely can sense the presence of other users that kind of also contribute to the creation of this map. And another thing is, of course, user is constantly constructing willingly or unwillingly this kind of walls and filter bubbles around itself, which means that um, every user perceives the city also through, um, let's say, a different version of a, or a different app or a different version of the same app, which means that uh, political subjectivity, or you can say truth, is also determined differently for each user. But uh, despite being kind of isolated within the software, um, I also think that um, user is never truly alone, of course. So on a platform, user always exists in relation to other users that also contribute uh, to, well, to what, whatever is displayed to the user and also whatever the platform defines the user by. So um, how it interprets the data. But at the same time, users become more and more compatible with other non-human entities. So a user can be now a combination of objects. It could be a human that asks Siri assistant to Google something for him or her, or it could be maybe a plant connected to a network that, and then there's a Twitter bot that acts on behalf of this plant. So uh, at this point, I started to wonder, like what could be kind of, how can this plurality or maybe collectivity that of the user database that is not really felt or visible to the actual user be maybe explored in a way that is more beneficial for the users, so in a, in a ways that are not predefined by this interface of the platform. So of course I arrived to this question. So what are the strategies or ways to enable users to gain more agency? And how can we, at, or maybe how can we at least become a little bit more aware of our own position in these infrastructures or cybernetic feedback loops? And maybe be in some way repoliticized. So, obviously, I do not have an answer to any of these questions, but I think actually no one person should have. So, uh, in, do, when I was doing my project, I invited 11 different people from different professions and fields like architecture, UX design, uh, policy advice to government, to kind of, who, who also work with the subjects to, uh, to kind of share the strategies and talk, to try to answer these questions from different perspectives. And I, I wanted to emphasize the fact that 
from a perspective of one singular field, let's say graphic design or any design, you cannot really address such a complex structural problem, which is you know, all this politics of being a user. So yes, this is, that happened. But today, I also wanted to share some of my own attempts to maybe address these questions through my own uh, work and from the perspective of graphic design, which I use as a tool to maybe explore that. So, um, and yeah, the attempts to work with kind of the political imagination of the user. So uh, first, I wanted to work with this idea, I was obsessed with this idea of overlapping technological layers within the city and this kind of verticality of these zones. So what you see on the here. And I decided to make a board game, um, to make a board game that would explore the um, economic logic of surveillance capitalism in action. So I decided to base it on the principles of monopoly game, which everybody knows, but instead, um, instead of having one city board, to extend it to four different layers. And so um, the airspace, the cyberspace, the orbital space, and land. And in the middle, it would be like a public space board. So each of these layers operate on their own economic lo uh, logic and have their own simulated version of the city. But the main principle stays the same. So instead of charging rent, uh, like in a classic Monopoly game, for, from other players, and kind of that's how you earn money, um, the idea was uh, is to, uh, that each player tracks and, and monetizes the movement of other users around the board, which means that um, players Build can build infrastructures, so for example, data centers and ground stations and private air zones, and uh, place some specific kind of trackers, so GPS trackers, hotspots, satellites. But and, uh, through that, they can mine surveillance tokens uh, from the movement of other players around the public space. So, and after aggregating enough of this kind of data of the surveillance tokens, they can exchange them for money. So to be clear is that yeah, instead of having charging directly, uh, making money of other players, the players make profit or they, uh, value, produce value from out of thin air just by kind of having someone pass through or buy their field. And of course, in this game, players would act again on the behalf of this kind of super techno capitalist companies. But I also wanted to introduce more of a funny socialist way to uh, win the game. And it, for example, by making, instead of making pure profit of the surveillance, to token, surveillance tokens and that they generate, uh, they could decide to reinvest them back to the public space, uh, to the zones that they own or that they are not owned and back to this city board. And in a g this game, it will be rewarded by, um, well, they would be rewarded for doing so with victory points. Of course, uh, in real life, if you think about it, it's like platforms are really not likely to have the incentive to kind of actually be act in such a way and share, you know, share or reinvest the value that they generate in the city back to this space. But, um, well, the, the kind of the idea or the point I want to make is that maybe urban simulations or games, like critical games, could, it's just like, of course, it's a quite obvious, but it's still an accessible way to explore al alternative economic narratives and also around new topics like this. So, um, and also it could be maybe for users be a start to start to like imagine alternatives about the distribution of surplus value that is generated by their movements and actually behavior in the city. So yeah, the name of the game is Reality Miners. And uh, that was one thing. And um, 
so with this game, I wanted to explore uh, the kind of the simultaneous operation of all of these layers and of different technological zones. But um, there's one layer that I find particularly interesting myself and uh, I was um, and also relevant maybe to the question, the main question of this uh, summer theme, uh, which is fake and truth. And uh, this is the industry of satellite observation. And today, uh, it's a rapidly evolving industry. Uh, which is accelerated by machine learning and AI, and Google, of course, is moving on to monopolizing this industry as well for the purposes of purposes of mapping and kind of data mining the surface of the Earth. Um, at the same time, um, the kind of the historically the satellite imagery has been always um, kind of prone for to man manipulation, falsification, and being like fa faked for the purpose of serving certain political agenda. So, uh, for example, uh, the first intervention in Iraq was justified by fake satellite image. And also, just four years ago, um, well, um, the Russian government has published a satellite image that was later uh, as an evidence in a case of MH17 plane crash. And it was later to be, uh, was proven to be fake because the satellite that was supposed to take this image was not passing at the right moment, at the right space, and at the right time and with the right angle. So, but this kind of, uh, the, yeah, the quality, this pixelated texture of, uh, of the satellite image, even of a higher resolution satellite image, allows, uh, like, creates this kind of idea of the subject, uh, uh, objectivity around it. And, but also governments are also still up to date, um, kind of making deals with different satellite companies, but also with the other governments for, in order to control, regulate, and also, maybe censor the distribution or dissemination of certain images. So um, there's like a lot of politics uh, going around behind just such a simple and ubiquitous object as a satellite image and like politics of resolution, you could call. But I'm not going to dive into them now, or thankfully. But uh, what I'm, I wanted to share with you is maybe another approach to uh, also kind of to, to, to think about this politics of infrastructure and through, which I did through like really straightforward mapping. So uh, I decided to take one date and one specific moment of time, which was April 2016, which was two years ago, and make an atlas of all um, high-resolution imaging satellites that were orbiting the Earth at this moment. And I wanted to show this kind of constellations of commercial satellites that are well, the, the ones that deliver uh, images to services like Google Earth, and but also sell them at a really high price. But also I wanted to introduce the satellites themselves as objects that you can know by name and also learn about like the significant moments in politics or, or media when they played a role or the images they produced played a role. And I uh, also generated maps uh, which would show like, um, yeah, uh, certain controversial political events. So, for example, the notorious MH17 flight crash, because and I want to do that kind of to show that uh, with the um, with the satellite industry or without satellite images, if they used as evidence, the time, the precise, the moment, the very specific moment of time really matters in order for to construct or deconstruct the truth. So you could could be you could use it as evidence, but also as a proof of something is fake. So I wanted to do that with the idea that just learning more about these kind of media objects that are really obscure, we could also become more critical about the everyday use of satellite images that we see on Google Earth. So who, oh, images that end up there were defined by all these um, kind of power relations behind this industry. 
But another thing that I want to share with you, the last thing I want to share with you today is that while I was doing this research, I talked uh, to um, a guy who works in the Air and Space Evidence Agency, which is a space law firm, uh, working uh, precisely with uh, satellite imagery for forensic purposes. And uh, while I was asking him about uh, like how satellite image can be used as an evidence, he also told me about really weird cases when people knew that they were surveilled by satellites and then they wanted to actually uh, use it to their own advantage because they would um, use, the, they wanted to take advantage of the low resolution quality of these images. And uh, he told me that there were farmers in the UK uh, that were um, putting umbrellas in their farms that would look like trees on the images and then they would get more uh, subsidies from the government for the farms. And then they would like give umbrellas to the next farm or something like this. So again, uh, I was, of course I thought this uh, story was amazing and I thought, hey, I can make a project out of this. So what, uh, I decided to make uh, the collection of this kind of fake uh, props that would look, uh, maybe would look realistic on satellite imagery and ideally they could be used or appropriated to kind of inflate or fake the value of your own real estate or your, yeah, of your um, real estate. And, um, and of course, however silly this project is, uh, I think the main point I'm trying to make with it, but also with all other projects, is that, um, well, what is it? Sorry. <laughs> this gets too stressful. Yeah. So instead of, um, so surveillance has become an inevitable property of reality, and instead of trying to fight it or deny it, we should maybe, what we could, what we could is to try to find a way to also adapt and to try to bend the same mechanisms that are already at play, but for the benefit of the users. And it could happen on an individualistic level, like here, I would say, which is, I'm not believe it, it's like it's actually effective, or it would happen on a more like collective or urban scale, which you would see in the game, and of course, uh, maybe there are some initiatives that work with that. But maybe we should try, uh, so maybe we should try ways to intervene in these feedback loops rather than try to avoid them. So, how do we become autonomous user agents? I think this is like a perfect question for places like these, where with hackers and designers come together and they can talk about strategies and um, what could be effective or not. But I think as non-technical users that, um, well, just users, everyday users, normal users, it's quite, it's still very difficult to make an impact or uh, actually intervene in this kind of uh, large-scale processes that are remain really obscure and incomprehensible. And, um, but we are so tightly embedded in them. So maybe I, was, I just think like the best, maybe sometimes as a user, the best thing we could do is to also just pause and within this kind of smooth interface life and think um, if, if we are so simulated and over-optimized and isolated and what, why, if everything is so smooth in the augmented city, why are we still feeling so sad? Thank you. Um, you mentioned the citizen all at the beginning and then did not come back to the citizen at all. Does that mean you don't think there is a 
valid citizen position anymore, or is just just not the topic of your talk? Well, I I, um, I took citizen as a reference point, I would say, but it's also quite. I mean, it's really specific way of defining a citizen because we would talk about like ideal democratic Western citizen that has all the rights and they're all enabled and stuff like this. And um, yeah, I think I wanted to more focus on the, the next yeah. steps, yeah. what citizen transforms into. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned also uh, a kind of post-human cyborgian user, like uh, this, the, the, the plant uh, Arduino Twitter uh, configuration or the maybe uh, human and phone collective or whatever. So, um, in the end, you talk again about uh, the individual human, uh, but is there also, I was wondering, if you have uh, ideas or interesting examples of these kind of maybe positions of resistance of these more kind of cyborgian users? Just as a, maybe as a fantasy, but. I wouldn't say, like I know an example that I would say now, but I was just thinking that, yeah, as a, even if it's a human user, like the, your agency depends on the protocols within protocols. So, if, I mean, they are the ones that define what you can or cannot do. So, in that sense, maybe, uh, yeah, I would I would think in that direction. Uh, we all uh, actually in the, the last talk of Louis Center here, we'll get back to uh, maybe a slightly more elaborate. But I would like to kind of hook, hook you two up then in the end again. But uh, anybody else has a question? Then we go to the next speaker. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very much. Thank you.